This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll be following the RACGP elections and hearing from the candidates who are vying for the position of college president. This episode, I'm catching up with Associate Professor Charlotte Hespie, who is the current chair of the New South Wales and Australian Capital Territory RACGP faculties and also a Sydney based GP. But now, uh, an RACGP presidential candidate. Charlotte, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Francine, for inviting me on. Firstly, Charlotte, I just wanted to say we were so sad to hear about the passing of Dr. Harry Nesplin. Harry was such a strong advocate and gave GPs so much hope. He was a friend to us, the medical republic and the medical media in general. He was successful in lobbying and getting government support for advocating for GPs. How has the college and the community been affected by this sad news? Well, the thing about Harry... And it's really important to have for people to understand that is that what he didn't want is anyone to feel sorry for him. And what he did want was to do a great job for GPs and to continue advocating for them. So up until this point in time, we've really not felt anything um, with respect to, and if, you know, Harry's illness hasn't um, affected the way that he has operated. He is... Um, he was um, a truly amazing leader in that he very much worked tirelessly to try and get general practice front and foremost at government, in media and the issues that really matter for us. He was a GP, a GP practice owner, a keen advocate for teaching and education, has been involved in Um, general practice at multiple levels for a long time and I personally have had the privilege of working alongside of him for 18 years of that time and so he and I know each other very well we used to joke about the fact that we used to share I'd be chair of a board and then he'd be chair of the board and then I might be chair of the board so we sort of know each other's styles really well Um, and so it was sort of um it's been really hard being uh, with him um, right from the moment of the diagnosis of his illness, which actually happened back at GP19, um, and then being with him through the journey of that illness. We, as GPs, all know that the last diagnosis you want to get is pancreatic cancer. Um, it's not one that really makes you feel that there is much hope, but he took as much hope as he possibly could have from that diagnosis and it never stopped him once. And uh, right up until the very last moment, um, I used to text him (laughs) every day. um, And um, to me, that's what I'm going to miss the most is he was such a good um, person to be able to... uh, reflect on what was going on and sort of take make sense of the things and how you would approach them and the best ways to be advocating actively for general practice and uh and so and I and I'm going to miss that so much um because he was wise and uh he called (laughs) we have very different styles he called things very bluntly and he was really willing to just go in there and not stand for any nonsense which it was just just the perfect timing for us I think in general practice for doing that but he's 
also was extraordinarily collaborative. And uh, so the board um, for the RACGP under his um, term as presidency has been included in everything that he would do and say. Um, and he never went off just doing things on his own. It was about making sure that the board was with him and we were strongly supportive of everything that he did and said um, at all times. And so um, we're all going to miss that. Um, There's no doubt about it. But you know what? He's put us in a good position to be able to go forward. And so really that's what I'm going to have to do is to hold up that um, aspiration that Harry has set the foundation to continue some of that um, advocacy work Um, and I'm going to do it even more with a passion now that Harry isn't around to be able to be in the, the background scenes behind it. So it really sounds like you and also I'm sure all of the candidates running in this upcoming election will really be looking to carry on that legacy and that torch that Harry lit for all those years, both in the college and in his other work lobbying for GPs. If you were to be the next president, Charlotte, I'd like to start by asking what's the most important skills or experiences you think you would bring to the job? Um, thanks for asking that, Francine. I mean, from where I'm sitting, I'm I'm a fairly unusual um, candidate, but having said that, similar to Harry in many respects in that I bring the sort of a really broad experience of general practice. So I am absolutely front and foremost a GP um, and I love being a GP and I'm passionate about what GPs can do but I'm also a practice owner I've been a practice owner for um, just over 20 years and I'm also a GP supervisor for both medical students and registrars and really love the opportunity that that gives in terms of being able to share the passion share some of the skills and um, be able to mentor people into being um into being fantastic GPs. Um, I'm also, though, a GP academic. I work at Notre Dame Uni, where I have the privilege of being head of general practice and primary care research. So, again, I have an opportunity to teach medical students and to try and get into their thinking that the whole foundation of really good healthcare is about general practice and about generalism and about having the patient front and foremost of the way in which we consider both the diagnosis but then the ongoing management and recommendations and the way in which we then help guide them through the pathways of care that they have to do. And that's, you know, such a wonderful um, opportunity to um, be able to, you know, sort of do that um, at such an honour. But at the same time, I'm also able to do research because I actually love that whole thing about that I could always do better. And But how do I do better if I don't know what I'm doing at the moment? And so I sort of am a bit of an addict around trying to review what I do and get better at it. And so I'm actually in the midst of a PhD on how do you implement um, best practice in the real world of general practice and what does that look like and the sort of the the topic that um, I've got 
a bit of a passion about as well is about cardiovascular disease. And I, the reason for that is because it is such a preventable thing. And so it is something that in general practice, we really can have a ma- make a major impact in decreasing the um, what cardiovascular disease does in terms of deaths and um, morbidity. Um, and so it's about sort of trying to understand how do we do that? How do we recognise who's at risk and what are the things that we can do to try and get people to engage with um, preventative care? Then finally, that last bit, that is the, the bit that's again, unusual, and I fell into it in an unusual way, is the governance stuff. So I had the privilege of being involved in boards um, since 2000, when I became involved with my local division of general practice and had a crucifixion of fire in terms of learning about governance and became chair of that board fairly quickly and then um, was involved in the setup of um, a regional training provider which was SIGPET in my regional area and then sort of over the last basically 20 years now have had the privilege of being on quite a few boards um, as director and pretty much over that entire 20 years until this year is the first time I haven't actually been um, chair of one of those boards. Um, So I've had a great experience in what governance looks like. I've had a fantastic opportunity to be able to be a leader of um, organisations that do have an impact on health outcomes, both in the community, within general practice, the broader primary care space, and more specifically, the education of our GP registrars. And then um, since 2017, with the RACGP as well. So it sounds like you've really done a little bit of everything. In terms of what you would do in the two years if you were to become president, out of political advocacy, education and training and governance, do you see one as being an area that the RACGP needs to put the most focus on in the next couple of years going forward? Okay, that's an interesting sort of thought. And thanks (laughs) as I sort of think about how to answer that. Okay, I think they all have something useful because there's a huge amount of opportunity in the next two years. The governance one is really important because if you don't have your governance right and the way in which you set up how you lead and how that then flows down into the organisation and how the RACGP basically implements the strategic plan that the board and the president set, then there's a lot of time and decision-making effort that goes to waste. So the governance is what I sort of see as the platform on which I then stand in terms of understanding what has to go on there. With that, I've developed some really good relationships with people across Australia. Um, Again, a privilege to have been able to get to know and work with people in that sort of network. And so I do understand the conversations that need to be had, the advocacy, and a whole lot of people to help come to that decision making. Good leadership is not about standing up and telling people what to do. Good leadership from my perspective and view around what I've experienced over this time has been about respect about relationships and about collaboration. And that's the sort of leadership that I certainly would be planning to bring as president based on that sort of deep understanding of governance and knowledge. And in particular, um, having been on the board for the last two and a half years, a knowledge of what needs to be done in terms of improving 
our governance model. Um, and there's no doubt that it needs to improve, but all governance models need to be improved and can be improved. And that's um, one of the joys of doing that sort of work. But then actually understanding what it means to be a GP and a practice owner in the current environment. Really the most important thing that we need to achieve in the next two years is actually about achieving general practice um, to be a sustainable career going forward. And that means, you know, a sustainable income stream for all GPs, a sustainable income for um, for practice owners to be able to actually run a practice that provides all of the services that can deliver good patient-centred care um, and not create worry and concern. And, you know, certainly through COVID-19, we've seen that that is, you know, really become front and centre of a lot of um, conversations about the viability of general practice. But also we need to actually have an understanding that we need to be a specialty that attracts the medical students and the junior doctors in training. And that's not just about the income, but the income is really important. It's also about how we view ourselves. We need to actually be able to re-establish a culture of truly valuing what generalism brings to the table rather than what I see all the time is this um, condescending sort of approach that generalism isn't as special as specialisation. Um, when really, when I view it, I think that the generalism is the way, is the most important part. And if we can't get that properly funded, um, properly understood and um, deeply embedded in the medical culture, then, um, then that's a sad day. And that's where we sort of, we really risk that at the moment. So that would be my front and foremost thing that needs to be focused on. And that then takes good leadership um, and building up more good leadership behind that. Yeah, I think you've just hit on something that uh, definitely a lot of GPs are asking heading into this election is kind of that culture of decades of being treated by government as a second priority in the healthcare system to other specialists or, for example, the hospital system. I was going to ask, and it's a very hard question, but what would be your concrete steps that you would take uh, to improve the lobbying power of general practice in Canberra? I think it's really important to know that there is no benefit in us going lobbying to Canberra and say give us more money because um, that just doesn't work and they're not interested and COVID-19 means that's even less likely to happen. We know that telehealth which got rolled out in 10 days instead of 10 years courtesy of COVID so again it's about recognising that COVID-19 disruptive, awful times has provided us with certain opportunities and that's what we've got to, to go on. So telehealth was an, op um, an opportunity. That funding is at risk of going at the end of September 30 without a good story about why it should stay. And that why it should stay is the same story that we need to be really weaving, um, singing and dancing about at those highest levels of policy, which is goes back to what I was saying, is that truly generalism is the way in which the Australian medical system is going to survive. Um, and it's going to survive because 
we are actually far more affordable than hospitalisation. Um, if I see somebody in the community and I prevent them going to hospital, I might be the cost of two Medicare level 23 consultations. If instead they pop into hospital, even just one assessment in an accident emergency costs 10 times that, okay? So we're chalk and cheese in terms of affordability. So if you invest in primary care, general practice, patient-centred sort of a continuity of care models where we can actually not only deliver a fantastic continuity of care model, but also um, decrease the number of medications that might be being um, prescribed, decrease the number of um, investigations that are used because we've got it all in the one place. We know we don't need to repeat things that don't need to be repeated. We can make sure that the pathways of care are appropriate and they get to see somebody effectively. And hopefully we actually can put in place the wonderful sort of preventive care red book framework around what we're doing in how we're looking after our patients. Overall, that's going to reap huge cost benefits to the Australian healthcare system overall. And that's around the hospital prevention you know, prevention. It's about the decreased medications. It's about the decreased testing. Now, funnily enough, um, you know, a lot of the other specialties don't really want that to happen because um, if I'm a pathologist, I don't really want to lose a whole lot of my pathology referrals. Um, and there's sort of other benefits of being, having patients referred to specialists for second, third opinions, etc. You know, so, but that's the money that we need to be showing and demonstrating we can save because we can actually manage patients by and large 90% of the time in the primary care setting. You just have to go to countries like Denmark to see how they've done it. It's amazing. But you know, they've invested three times as much money in primary care than the Australian healthcare system has, but it's worth it to them. They see that it's worth it and they've been willing to do it. That's the story we need to take and just not stop saying it to government until they actually understand it and fund it. Yeah, absolutely. I spent some time uh, living in Denmark, so I've been a patient in that system and it's definitely a primary first model and they divert their funding to primary first. Uh, so you're right in saying that. And you've just also answered my question about how to ensure that telehealth remains funded after September. So you're saying that it's definitely an affordability argument for the government in this pandemic. Yes, telehealth is a tool in better continuity of care. So what telehealth does, and we've all experienced this, is it means I can access, a, a patient can access me um, in circumstances where they might not otherwise be able to. And, you know, government got that from a remote and rural setting perspective before, but they didn't really get that the value of this tool is not just for rural and remote, it's actually for a large number of socially vulnerable, elderly, frail, all sorts of sort of patients. I mean, even if you just think about a medical certificate, you know, why on earth would you want to bring a sick, a virally um, throwing out person into a waiting room of a doctor's surgery where there's all these otherwise complex um, and multi-morbidity type patients sitting in the waiting room just because they need to have a medical certificate to go to work. You know, th that's that's a telehealth 
consultation. It, absolutely, you know, I could look at them over the the um, video, but I'm not. Most of the time, I'm not really doing anything more than hearing their story, validating that, and then saying, "Yep, sure, one day is worthwhile. Maybe you need two. Um, if you're not better, then I do need to see you face-to-face in X amount of time. You know, have the red flags out. I can do the proper consults, not like a pharmacy one where I'm just going to sign a form. I actually do the proper history taking, um, but I don't need to have them infecting the surgery. That's an access thing. Um, the number of my elderly, um, frail patients who it's fantastic that they don't have to come into the surgery every time. But I need a program of care because I do need them to come in every now and again. There are certain things that I want to actually see face-to-face, have conversations that are easier to do in that setting, um, but they don't need to be every time I see them. So one thing that could come up if you were to become RACGP president is in the event that the CPD home legislation passes the Senate, that would mean that potentially members wouldn't need to be affiliated with a college anymore, such as the RACGP or ACRAM to register their CPD points. How would you make the college more attractive to members in the event that that did happen in your time as president? Great question. And it will happen if I become president in that that's that's due to happen in 12 months time. Well, I think that boils down to um, one of the things that I actually, why I signed up to go on the college board in the first place was uh, the desire to actually have the college really develop um, a a strategy around delivering value for members. So what does that look like? What um, are the things? I mean, in CPD, um, let me promise you, if you think that it's going to be easy to just do everything yourself to the AMC, well, you know, you're still going to have to have someone who actually um, does that for you. So I think the college still needs to set the standards, needs to have an excellent education program, and it needs to make it really easy for us as the individual who's doing it to register, log and do it down. But it's not just about the CPD. There's all those other things like the advocacy about um, up-to-date information. Um, As chair of the New South Wales ACT, one of the things I've been absolutely proactive about and it's been really good is about the regular COVID update emails. When we were right in the midst of it um, back in March, April, we were doing daily COVID updates, which were fantastic because they were the links to the each of the different states um, and each state was doing something different. Um, so by having them state-based, being able to say, this is what New South Wales is doing, this is what Victoria is doing, this is what WA is doing was really, really helpful because it was very confusing times. So it's that sort of responsiveness, flexibility. Um, about actually going in and advocating for the GPs in training, about making sure that the conditions that they need are there, helping them with contracts. If As me as a practice owner, what are the things that I need to know assisting me in actually making sure that all of the sort of systems of care, some protocols, um, you know, education brief briefings to all the sort of the GPs that I work for, assistance as we manage change and transform from paper prescribing into electronic prescribing, assisting as we try and understand the legislation behind privacy and help with, you know, uploads to my health record. All of those things, those the value add. 
you know, I think a lot of people don't actually use their membership as much as they should or could because they don't even know about what the college has got behind the scenes. They only sort of see the ticker box for the CPD. I want members to really understand all of those benefits and easily access them to actually feel valued, to have a voice and to feel that the things and the concerns that that you have as an individual are listened to and responded to appropriately and rapidly. It's a bit like the model of patient-centred care, actually. It's about having a college that actually cares about me and not just the fact that I'm paying a subscription as a GP to the organisation. And so the last question for you today would be, what is the main message for your campaign that you'd like to tell Australian GPs? The main message that I have is that we do actually need to um, have strong leadership at this time. There is huge opportunity right at the moment because of the disruption. So the leadership that we have needs to take us there and we actually need to achieve wins for general practice. And the most important, obviously, at this point in time is about the sustainability, financial reimbursement and um, and that culture of attracting the junior doctors to us for a workforce to go forward. Dr Charlotte Hespy, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on the program. If you'd like to know more about either Charlotte Hespy or her policies, you'll find a link to her website on the Medical Republic page where you found this podcast. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to the podcast as we'll be bringing you more candidate interviews. And you can even leave a comment. I love hearing your feedback. Or if you'd like to contact me directly at any time, you can do that either reaching out by Twitter or emailing me at francine at medicalrepublic.com.au. Catch you next time.